Computer, initialize Holosuite. Welcome to Beyond Farpoint, a Star Trek The Next Generation podcast here on Holosuite Media. I'm your host, Baz Green, and with me as ever on this journey is my co-host, Jeff Owen. Jeff, how are you today? I'm good, thanks, Baz. A little bit tired today, but otherwise I'm uh, I'm doing well. How, how are you doing, my friend? I'm very good, thanks. I just got back from a trip away on the bank holiday weekend. That's when we're recording this. And uh, yeah, really excited to talk about these episodes. I think these are been a long time coming for us. Yeah, absolutely. It's well, we'll get into it, but obviously they're uh, very, very. They're more famous for Deep Space Nine, but um, it's it's an alien race that we've been wanting to talk about for a while because they have their roots very much in the Next Generation. They absolutely do, and uh, and that's pretty much the kind of part of this uh, this episode of Beyond Farpoint. So uh, this month, if you haven't guessed, we are talking Cardassians and their introduction to the Star Trek franchise. Yeah, we're not talking about Chloe or Kim or those ones. We are talking about no, the, not yeah, <laughs> the reptiles, the Cardassians, as opposed to the Cardassians. Yeah. I, I think I think I don't know what's more frightening, but um. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff, really important question for you before we start: How many lights can you see? Um, four. Good answer. <laughs> I don't know where you go about that. I'm not as ruthless as uh, as uh, David Warner as uh, Gone Madrid. So uh, yeah, that's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a nicer co-host than them. But uh, anyway, yeah. So what we're going to focus on today really are kind of three key episodes. Um, there are there are a few more that kind of build up towards DS9, but really we are going to talk about the debut of the Cardassians in season four's The Wounded. And then the almighty two-part chain of command from season six, which aired just before the debut of spin-off Deep Space Nine. So I think part of the discussion is where I talk about the episodes, we talk about the Cardassians in general, and in how well they are set up for the uh, the next Star Trek spin-off uh, at the time. So Jeff, are you a fan of the Cardassians? And, and where would you rank them among the other big races like the, like the Klingons, the Romulans and the Borg? They're up there, aren't they? Uh, they are... They're definitely one of the big ones. I mean, are they are they as good as the Klingons? Are they as good as the Romulans, the Borg? I'd say they definitely are. They've got that sort of... They're very much like us, I think. They're very much like humans. And I think they're, they're kind of the same with the Romulans, whereby they're, um, you know, the, 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 there isn't... A stereotype about them. I mean, with Klingons, it's like they're the warrior race. With the Borg, it's they come to assimilate. Ferengi are all about money. There's no stereotype about the Cardassians because you've seen good Cardassians, you've seen bad Cardassians, you've seen sly Cardassians, friendly Cardassians. You know, it's. I th- I think they're pretty much like us. It's just that they're probably leaning a bit more towards the sinister side. Oh, definitely, yeah. I think it probably helps that they weren't created in the original series or very early next gen. So I think you know 
when the when the kind of the, I mean Borg are slightly different Borg are basically space zombies and mm. uh, you know they're the most terrifying when they are basically zombies but I think generally so the the Romulans and the Klingons and obviously the Ferengi in, in the season one they were kind of created really as broad stereotypes you yeah. kind of knew what they what they were and 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 what you know you could identify them by this same same with the Vulcans for example you know. Obviously, they were fleshed out and developed over time, and Next Gen did tremendous work with these races, and things like DS9 would continue to do that really good work as well. But I think maybe because they were created in what season four, and then and then really fleshed out further with season five, six, and so on, going to DS9. This is the point when Star Trek: The Next Generation was so confident in its storytelling, it could create a kind of very rich and nuanced race, and obviously we saw that develop massively in Deep Space Nine as well. But um, yeah, I, I think. I, I agree like you. I, th- I think they stand up as as good as the Romulans and the Klingons, and I guess the way the Borg. They're all close to the Romulans and Klingons in nature, and there's such a rich depth to to their race yeah. that um, it, they're, they're fascinating to what they're fascinating the, the the way you know you could say they're kind of slightly mi- they're based around military or they're based around the concept of family or they're quite ruthless. You know, they're, they're, yeah, there are facets to the Cardassians, but there, there's so much to it. That I, I, I think uh, when Cardassians are on screen, you know, there's just generally trouble, but it's not a case of like shoot, shoot, kill, kill, shoot, shoot, bang, bang. It, you know, it's not a straightforward conflict. You know, there's there's a lot more, and we're talking in the episodes we're talking about. There's a lot of levels to the the interactions with the Cardassians. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, looking at Deep Space Nine, you had three recurring guest characters. That were all Cardassians, and you know they couldn't be more different. You've got mm. um, you've got Dukat, who's seen in the very first episode, and obviously he was the person that kept the Bajorans, and he he was the uh, prefect of Bajor. He saw over uh, Terok Nor. He was effectively the person that Kira was rebelling against when she was part of the terrorist group. Um, you see. Goldicat warm. Actually, I've just realised there's four recurring characters because I hadn't even thought of Zial, who I've just remembered. Mm. Um, but obviously, you see him cool down. You see him relax over time. Then suddenly, the Cardassians tie in with the Dominion, and you see a much more uh, focused Ducat before he gets sent over the edge and goes insane. You've got Garak, who's got, uh, who is the former spy. He is the tailor on Deep Space Nine, and according to some sources, I think even Andrew Robinson himself, he's gay, uh, which could have been an interesting story if allowed to develop on Deep Space Nine at the time. Uh, you've got Zial, you've got Ducat, half Bajoran, half... Cardassian illegitimate daughter um, who is so friendly, so warm so loving Um, and you've got Damar who ends up completely rebelling against the Cardassians joining uh, the Federation at the end of it in the war against the Dominion and the Cardassians so you know you've got four really really different characters there and you know, I don't think they had any of this in mind when they first created the Cardassians for the next generation. Well, quite possibly, but yeah, I mean, to about those characters, I mean, Garak is my favourite character in the entire Star Trek universe. 100%, He's yeah. So, yeah, absolutely amazing character. Andrew Robinson is fantastic in the role. I, I could watch Garak just talk all day long. He can read the phone book and I'd love to watch it. 
Absolutely, it'd be fascinating to watch. I mean, I mean, Mark Allen was Ducat as well. I think I, I noticed. Um, I think one of the social accounts on on Twitter and Instagram. I've been running the greatest villains poll lately, and Ducat is coming up on top. And there's there's no wonder why, because Ducat is a phenomenal villain. He mm. is, you know, he's actually better when he's more nuanced. When he becomes the kind of the emissary or the parvace right at the end, he's probably a little yeah. bit more kind of a caricature. But that's right at the very end. But there is so much to the cat, and I love that he's a villain, and then he's an ally, and then you you go to like him, and then he does something that kind of betrays everything, and then you kind of you feel sorry for him when he, when he, when he loses everything, and then he, then he becomes a villain again. It's so so yeah, he's so so good. I mean, again, Demar, who is basically just Ducat's henchman, and then becomes this massively tragic heroic figure in in the uh, final episodes of uh, Deep Space Nine, yeah, and, and even ZL is it? I know she had different actresses, so you kind of a little less of, of, of mm. a connection to her. She wasn't as much, but again, has a bit of a tragic story there. So yeah, these are fascinating characters, and I think going back to watching them now in Next Gen for the, for this podcast, seeing the performances in this of Mark Alamo, obviously is one of them because yeah. he played the very first Cardassian. They're such great characters. They are so good. They are, they are of that same model of the likes of Ducat and Garak that we'd seen. You know, not not as good because I think I think when they got to DS Nine, they really flourished. But you know, Gold Madrid, Gold Lamech, You know, these these are great characters. And um, yeah, Golovek definitely. So you know, great great characters. Um, obviously, we said they've, they've made their. They're very much a big part of Deep Space Nine. But do you think they, the Kardashians make their mark on TNG also? They hit the ground running with the Kardashians because they pretty much appear fully formed. You know mm. what the Kardashians are from that very first moment. All right, we're going to address it at some point, but maybe those helmets didn't quite work in the very <laughs> first episode. Um but otherwise, they're there, and it helps that the very first Cardassian we see is Mark Alimo. And, mm. you know, you can see straight away what's going to be Golda Cat yeah. a couple of years down the line. He's a different character. He's obviously playing Gelma Set at this point, and, you know, they, they obviously didn't plan for, uh, I'm guessing, Mark Alimo or even the Cardassians to be such a big thing at this point. Deep Space Nine is maybe six months away in planning, 12 months at a push. Uh, so were they thinking of the Cardassians uh, as having this major role in Star Trek mythology? Probably not. It may very well have been a one-off race and they'd never have gone back to them. But then you find out about what they were doing with the Bajorans later on and I think that starts getting addressed in the episode Ensign Row. And... Yeah, it's it it's such a great portrayal, and as I said, that they appear fully formed out of the box, and yeah, there isn't really much more to do with them apart from making them even more nuanced, which is I loved. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, yeah, looking looking at the wound, and we're gonna we're gonna get onto the wound in a second. I think the only two things that kind of feel different are. Those weird face contraptions, <laughs> but whatever, whatever yeah. they were, and if actually they're not kind of grey, they kind of they actually look a bit weird because there's like more fleshy, t- fleshy, fleshy tone to their skin and the kind of more reddish armour. So they obviously mm. haven't gone for that kind of grey skin effect and that kind of silvery dark armour that they have later on. But you know, these are these are two very, very small aesthetic things that get changed, which which happens a lot when you, when you introduce any kind of any race in any kind of uh, any science fiction show, certainly. But apart from that, the Cardassians and the Wounded are not 
only really different apart from skin tone to the Cardassians you'll see in Deep Space Nine you'll see even in Chain of Commands you know mm-hmm. they are they are the same race and I think what really helps is that the wounded and I'm really glad we're talking about the wounded what we, we could talk about Chain of Command and Chain of Command is an amazing two-parter and, yeah. and you know, maybe we're, we're giving a bit of disservice to both by not covering the wounded on isolation and then the chain of command. But you know, we wanted to talk about both of them because the wounded is some real fantastic well-being for the Cardassians. And, and that's why I'm glad we're kind of talking about that as a precursor to the almighty chain of command too. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think talking about the wounded on its own, it is a fantastic episode. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that we're getting to talk about it as sort of this big Cardassian mythology that the next generation starts to weave that um deep space nine then picks up the threads on later so um let's talk about the wounded then a federation starship on a merciless attack you have killed nearly 700 people a starfleet renegade on the brink of madness we had to act now picard must destroy his fellow officer to stop a war you must preserve the peace no matter what the cost he turns weapons on a Federation starship to protect the enemy? Starfleet Showdown on the next exciting episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. This was the 12th episode of Season 4, and it originally aired in the US on the 26th of January 1991 and the 7th of September 1994 here in the UK. It was written by Jerry Taylor, based on a story by Stuart Charno, Sarah Charno, and Cy Chermak. And directed by Chip Chalmers. So in this episode, the Enterprise is sent into Cardassian space to hunt down a rogue Federation ship that is attacking Cardassian targets and threatening the fragile peace treaty established just one year earlier. So before we get into the detail then, what are your general thoughts on The Wounded Jeff? It's a very underrated episode. I remember the first time I watched it and really, really enjoying it. And that's unusual because that's not normally the sort of episode that I go big into for Star Trek. But... Um, I got into it. I loved the, the 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 mystery that's in the episode. I loved the guest characters, and you know, as I said straight away, you've got this appearance of the Cardassian race, and it, yeah, it, it's it's an underrated gem. It's it's probably mm. in top twenty or thirty next gen episodes. Yeah, I would I would say so. Whereas Chain of Command is up there in some of the best, and you remember yeah. Chain of Command, and you remember David Warner and the Four Lights and all that stuff as well. I think the Wounded. I haven't seen the Wounded um, in quite a few years. I think I must have watched. I did. A, I did a full rewatch of Next Gen several years ago now, and it's probably quite a few years ago when it when it was remastered in HD. I think which um, obviously the Blu-rays came out, which I've run out got later. And I think it was shown mm-hmm. on 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 TV over here in the UK. I think on the Sci-Fi Channel. In the HDB Masters, I was quite excited to see what it looked like. And I went through the entire series, so I probably watched it then, a few years ago. But it's not one that really stuck with me. And going back now and looking at it, you're right, it, it, it is definitely in that top 20 or top 30 episodes of Next Gen. It does a superb job with the establishing the Kardashians, who they are. It very much feels out of the bat like this is the first of many. This is not a one-off, even though it may have mm. designed to have been a, a one-off. Uh, appearance for for this race and yeah i i think the the mystery the stuff with the phoenix as well the stuff with o'brien again all the stuff we're going to get into you know there's a really really compelling mystery behind the cardassians from the word go it almost feels like this this could be the romulan episode but yeah then they've tweaked it and brought this new race and i'm so glad they did because this will be a really good romulan episode you know 
uh, Federation ship going across the neutral zone, attacking Romulan targets. What's going on? You know, obviously the Romulans doing their kind of shady dealings and possibly building up his arms uh, and these ships to attack Federation space. You know, that sounds like many good next episode. Like, like for example, the the Defector in season three, which mm. we have talked about briefly before, another Marvel episode. It sounds very much up in the Romulan roundhouse, but. They do with the Cardassians. And the, and the Romulans and Cardassians, they, they have some similarities right down to the Obsidian Order and Tal Shiarx you see in Deep Space Nine. You know, they're both a little bit more insidious, a little bit more deceitful, and um, while having this very strong military presence. So, you know, there are similarities between them, but I'm really glad they, they kind of brought in this, this race, the Cardassians, because they're, they're immediately, you're immediately excited by who they are and, and, the, and, the, and the threat they pose. The one thing I kind of think... But they did just really, really well, even in that pre tart sequence, is establish who they are from the world. There's a tremendous amount of world building. You've got you've got them set up as a new player in the Target universe. Um, you've got the the idea of there's been a treaty from one year earlier. So there's been conflict running right the early years of yeah. Next Gen that we've never even seen. You know, you've got Picard talking about the Stargazer running from a Cardassian ship in battle and, and obviously Worf, who doesn't trust them, you know, he doesn't trust anyone, but particularly the Romulans again. So I think um, there's a really interesting setup for the Gastasians and it really from the from the word go sets them up as his interesting new player in the Star Trek universe yeah and um I know later on when they get to bring in Star Trek back in 2009 for uh the Kelvin movies um there's a small reference to a Cardassian drink in the bar that the young James Kirk drinks at mm. uh when he's involved in the bar uh, bar brawl um, so the Cardassians obviously have been around in the Federation for for at least a century by that point. Uh, sorry, in the Fed, in the Federation in the um, in the Quadrant for at least a century at that point, and Starfleet is aware of them. They may only be aware of them via the drink um, initially, but you know they know about the Cardassians, and yeah, they talk about this peace treaty, and yeah, it, it's it, it it's a great story to start on. I love the way uh, we mentioned before, you know, the same way that Armin Shimmerman played the first Ferengi in Star Trek, Mark Alamo plays the, one of the first Cardassians as well in, in, in Golma Set. Yeah, and Mark Alamo's obviously uh, been. He, he was the first Romulan that we saw in The Next Generation as well. He was, forget, yeah. In the neutral zone, so he must be their, uh, their actor to pick on if they, uh, if they need a new uh, alien race that's going to be he, around. He's their Mark Clennon, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It's um, no, it's great. I mean, weird face contraptions aside, I think the when Mark Animo comes and has gone on a set, he immediately has presence. You know, I love his performances. It is, it is very Ducat like. Um, I, I imagine you know Goldman set with his big mutton chops. They didn't really do facial hair much in afterwards, but uh, I kind of like the the bearded mutton chops that Goldman set has. You know, I I think, I think there's a world there where actually he's like Ducat's brother or his cousin or something. You, you were saying earlier on about the, uh, the the look of the Cardassians and how they changed. That was something that HD and the Blu-rays actually did for me because I thought it was just like um, an extra layer of skin, like mm. a dark layer of skin over the top. And it wasn't until I saw it in high def that I realised, oh, that's what they're going for. It's meant to be a Cardassian beard. And it looks so weird when you see Mark Alimo's, um Cardassian makeup done up with these, as you say, the mutton chops, and it looks mm. so bizarre. He, do, he does, but I say his performance is so good. He go, I would yes. love to have seen 
uh, Mercedes turn up on Deep Space Nine as a, as, a, as maybe maybe his brother, his twin, or his cousin, or something, and he had had him play two villains. No, that would be an interesting. <laughs> well, why not? They they do that sort of thing. Or they do it mainly with things like that in um, Doctor Who, where you get Martha Jones turning up as her own cousin. Mm. Um, but yeah, they could absolutely have gotten away with uh, with um, Gil Mercet and Gil. Uh, Ducat being related to each other, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing as well is Mark Alimo's got this really long neck, um, yeah. which you see uh, when he is in the episode Times Arrow, and they they based the whole Cardassian makeup and the reptilian neck around the fact that he had this long neck, and it looks fantastic mm. and so real as well. Yeah, absolutely. I like how, again, I like how the Cardassians feel they're humanoid, but they're a little less humans with weird things in their faces than, say, the Romans and Klingons. They're kind of mm. still like that. They could be human characters with, you know, just weird looking faces. Whereas the Cardassians, you know, it goes all the way down. You know, it's, it's like, like like Dax in the spots, but it's much more so. It's, uh, yeah, I, I love how the design goes all the way down on the, on the, on the neck as well. They, they feel like they've evolved from reptiles. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And obviously we know later on that in the episode The Chase, which mm. I'm sure we'll do at some point, where they they all get this sort of humanoid appearance. But yeah, it, it makes perfect sense that, yeah, these have come up from, from lizards, from reptiles, mm. uh, rather than from primates, which is what we've done. Absolutely, yeah. And then, of course, The Chase. And again, we talked before, I do want to cover that at some point. Again, it, it, the, the four races involved in that are the humans, the Klingons, the Romans, and the Cardassians. Again, shows yeah. how very quickly they become a prominent race in, in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, that's it. They're part of the big three, really. They are, really, absolutely, well, yeah. in that episode. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So what about the mystery running for the episode? Um, you know, the idea of why has Captain Maxwell and the US Phoenix attacked Cardassian targets? What did you think of, of the mystery? Before we eventually get to Maxwell later on the episode, what do you think of, of the situation that the Enterprise finds itself in? Are we going to talk about O'Brien at this point as well? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Definitely, I think O'Brien's very key to this episode as well. Yeah, because it's a, it's a big O'Brien episode, which for the next generation was quite unusual. And you get to see a lot more about O'Brien's uh, history and his um, his history with, uh, with Captain Maxwell uh, aboard the Rutledge. And, you know, he was his former tactical officer. And I did wonder about, you know, going from a tactical officer to an engineering role and a transporter role. But he is a chief petty officer at the end of the day. So he's probably a jack of all trades in that respect. And, um, he, you know, he's, he, he does where you, uh, he goes where you put him on the ship. Um, he's obviously got this history with uh, with Maxwell, a very, very good friendship as well. Um, and even he is confused by what Maxwell is doing to to hunt down these Cardassians and, and obviously get to the bottom of it. Because at one point you've got the the Enterprise chasing the Phoenix as it's about to attack a Cardassian freighter. Uh, and you just think, well, why is somebody from Starfleet doing this? What's mm. going on? Why have they got this vendetta all of a sudden against Cardassians and you know we don't know anything as a as an audience at this point about the Cardassians so we don't know what their ulterior motives are and we don't really know if Maxwell has turned rogue we don't know if he's doing the right thing yeah it, it, what's the what's his motivation why is he doing it 
Yeah, it, it's a great hook for the episode because you, the fact you don't see Maxwell or the Phoenix until about two-thirds of the episode means mm. you're left with this gaping mystery of what is going on. Surely a Starfleet officer won't go and just blindly start attacking Kardashian targets, particularly when they've only signed a peace treaty before. There has to be something behind it, which you do find out. Though never yeah. explicitly made, which is interesting as well. But um, yeah, it's certainly it's, it's, a, it's a really compelling mystery because... You're, you're as lost as Picard and as O'Brien as to what's happening. Yes, you don't know Maxwell at this point. You haven't seen Maxwell on, on, on the show. Obviously, you'll turn up later in the episode. But, yeah, you, you, you really are at a loss to what, what's going on. And I think what you said about um, O'Brien is good. Again, it almost feels like... I almost wonder if there were the glimmers of Deep Space Nine, even when they were making The Wounded, the fact there's a focus on, on O'Brien and Keiko as well. Obviously, he would be a recurring yeah. character in Deep Space Nine. I mean, this episode immediately follows on from Data's Day, which sees their wedding. So it's almost like two episodes in a row we've had o- O'Brien and Keiko during the season four run. And even though Star Trek Generation, as we talked about many times wasn't really kind of arc driven in the same way as Deep Space Nine was. You know, you've got this kind of follow through. You've had their wedding last episode, and even though it's a very minor subplot, you know, you've got the idea of, you know, what does their relationship look like when they're together, you know, the idea of what foods they eat. I mean, O'Brien is potato casserole. I, I like a casserole, but potato casserole, really, that doesn't sound particularly appealing, appealing to me. Um, but, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's you kind of you get that little bit of a kind of continuation of their relationship from the wedding, which I think is Keiko's first episode anyway, to yes, their kind of married life on the Enterprise afterwards, which I, I kind of appreciate as well. You know, not terribly exciting, but it's kind of the sort of scenes you would see later on with that family dynamic on, on Deep Space Nine. So that kind of... Um, when I watched, I, I, like you, I thought the wounded came before Deep Space Nine was really an idea, but maybe they already they had already thought, you know, we could use the Cardassians, maybe O'Brien, or maybe, maybe this episode seeded some of those ideas. Maybe the idea to put O'Brien yeah. in Deep Space Nine came from this connection to the Cardassians we see in this episode. I, 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 don't, I don't know. So, as with Chain of Command, which we'll definitely get onto in, in a moment, there's a lot of back and forth with the Cardassians. I, I I really like the uh, the civilized debate between uh, Picard and Massette throughout the episode. It's a clash of intelligences, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they're very very smart, very diplomatic, very. What am I looking for? There's obvious. They've both got motives, um, and Picard as well. He's obviously got his reasons for why he he needs. Uh, he needs to talk to them, and obviously you've you've got uh, from Massette's point of view, he's he's there. He's trying to feel out Picard. He's trying to feel out the Federation really, and mm. what their um, their ultimate aims are as well. So, yeah, the the it's um, it's a very civilized conversation, but there's something bubbling under, and it doesn't take much to see it. Absolutely. It's all like they're brandished their knives with big smiles. It's kind of like, you know, they're both, they're both trying to get the upper hand. And they're saying that the chain of command will explore further. But yeah, I really, I mean, Alamo is so good. He he plays, he say he plays so well. Um, Ducat in Deep Space Nine, when the Ducat Cisco dynamic is amazing as well. But I actually really like his dynamic with Picard as well. You know, Picard mm. can't give him the edge, but he's also got to give something because Picard is on the back foot. Because the Federation are attacking Cardassian ships, you know, this peace treaty is at stake. And uh, I like the whole idea of, you know, the kind of, it's almost a surprise when Picard gives the transponder codes to the Phoenix, to to yeah. Messiah and the Cardassians. Because he's basically, he has nothing left. He, he, he can't 
he, he can't bluff Masset any further. You know, we're now at the point when a supply ship, which essentially is innocent life, is being attacked by a Federation starship, a heavily armed Federation starship. You know, and he has to get those other those codes because otherwise, you know, war is gonna war is gonna break out. So it's a really, really interesting, really tough situation for Picards. And uh, I think there's the scene when they're watching the battle unfold from the centers. I, I know it kind of budget, so they don't show a lot of the battle, but you know, seeing these uh, Cardassian ships destroyed and seven hundred lives lost to the Federation, it's like what the hell is going on? It, 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 again, that that mystery of what is going on is so compelling because. It seems like you're obviously missing something here, and uh, it's so big. But as an audience member, you're you're right there with Picard and O'Brien and everyone else Enterprise going. What is going on? You know, what am I? We have to stop war. We have to stop the war from breaking out again. The peace treaty is at stake. But what can we do? You know that something's going on as well because of the way O'Brien is treating them as well, and mm. um, you know you've got that moment where he's talking to Keiko in the quarters and he's saying, well, I'm, I'm fine with them, you know, and uh, <laughs> you just know, no, because just a few minutes earlier, you were in a turbo lift with them and you were giving them the ev- uh, both the evil eye and saying, oh, you know, would you fancy going out for a drink later? And he says, look, if I get told to help you, I will help you. But who I spend my quality time with is my decision. You can sort of see he still hates them. Yeah. But he doesn't want to admit that he hates them because to Keiko, they're all absolutely fine. And yeah, he doesn't see why anyone would have a problem with the Cardassians. Mm. But he does still 100% hate them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I picked up on was the kind of the trauma of war. You know, you, you kind of, I think it also taps into Picard's own experience of the hatred of the Borg as well. You know, because there is that kind of thing, you know, Picard talks about Maxwell living with anger, you know, living with hatred, mm. you know, which I think is basically, is, is not even, it's almost overtly him, you know, his, his own hatred and anger of the Borg, which you see later on with things like Hugh, later on the other line, you know, you know this enemy who, who costs you so much, and Maxwell lost his entire family, in the same way that Picard lost his own self with, with, the, with the Borg, and you kind of get that sense of, Picard understands Maxwell's anger, how he's living with it constantly, and you see that very much with Brian and Glindara. That um, that scene, the scene when they do actually kind of have that drink together in Ten Forwards, and you know O'Brien's talking about his experiences of of war, and and, and you know, and he's honest. He says, "It's not you. I hate Cardassian. I hate what I became because of you." And the great idea, line. he such a great line. It is a fantastic line, and you know, and that's that's that's. O'Brien realised, you know, these wounds are still fresh. Yeah, they might have been 10, 20 years ago when I was serving with Maxwell on another ship, but I still remember the trauma of war and what happened and, and the people that died and the settlers that were slaughtered. You know, I think it's all children being killed here as well. And, yeah. you know, Glendower says it was a mistake and he might generally believe that, but, you know, O'Brien saw these dead settlers. You know, he experienced firsthand what happened in that conflict. And, you know, it's, it's no wonder he can, he, you know, we we talked about a lot in Star Trek, you know that they they never really have the the, the right level of kind of counselling support for the trauma they go through on a continuous basis, and um, I think if they did, I think uh, Troy would have a whole fleet of counsellors on on the Enterprise to deal with everyone's traumas. So you know it's like him him saying, oh yeah, it's fine, the war's over. It's all a mask because he's living with that trauma. Of what happened in the same way that Max was living with that trauma, the same way that Picard might be living with the trauma of the Borg. You know they all 
have that trauma for their own experiences. And as much as they might try and be professional and get on with it, it's still there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Glindaro and Glintella, they both appear to be quite young Cardassian officers. Mm. They probably weren't even around uh, during the, uh, the, the the war that O'Brien and uh, Maxwell uh, fought in. Or if they were, they were very, very young. So, you know, they probably were just children at that point. But, you know, they're obviously growing up. Uh, they've become officers. They've become officers in a more you'd hope peaceful Cardassian environment mm. and yeah they are they're now on board a ship with the Federation potential ally of course they're gonna try and want to make friends with O'Brien you know and the crew of the Enterprise because they they don't know the history they don't know the experiences of what these older crew have gone through not even they probably don't even rem- uh, realize what Masset has gone through um, with the with the Federation as well. So, you know, he's uh, Daro is there trying to make friends with O'Brien. O'Brien doesn't want anything to do with him until later on, and O'Brien, as I said, delivers that great line. And uh, he's he obviously has done some uh, reflection on himself, and I think talking to Keiko about his prejudices because they are um and he probably realizes that uh no this this isn't me this isn't what i need to be absolutely yeah again it's where keiko serves her purpose which going follows through in deep space nine as well as a sounding board for him so let's um let's get to bob gonton then as captain maxwell what are your thoughts on gonton's performance and the character of maxwell in general i don't know considering what the mystery was he didn't feel like the sort of guy who would do it. I'm not convinced when we actually saw him that he was the person capable of the of what was going on. Maybe that was just a performance, but he he seemed quite calm and reserved and mm. I was expecting someone who was who was wired a bit like Decker in the Doomsday Machine in the yeah. original series. But um, no, he was he was much more reserved. A great great character. Just I don't think he was the character that was going round doing what they were doing what he was doing. It's an interesting one because I, I I do agree. I think the idea of the Cardassians may have been arming ships with supplies to potentially attack the Federation. There's a might have been. This might have happened. That might have happened. I think there's enough mystery. Yeah, that it kind of, and I think it's one of those things as well because we've watched the Cardassians over the rest of Next Gen and certainly over Deep Space Nine. You know exactly what they're up to. You know, we talk, we talk about you know the Cardassians yeah. aren't aren't a one singular focused race, but this is the kind of things they do. They do it all the time. They do it all the time in Deep Space Nine. They do it a little bit in uh, in even Chain of Command. They they kind of they've got their own plans as well. So I think there's probably a little bit of a. Um, a bias towards Maxwell in a way because you know what Cardassians do. However, I agree, in isolation, I think the the resolution of that is a little bit weak because it doesn't feel like there is enough evidence there to really justify that. There was was something else that maybe Maxwell couldn't publicly admit, but he knew something else that maybe felt a little bit lost in translation when the episode is made. But as for Maxwell himself, I really like him. I think he definitely comes across, you know, Gunton's performance as Maxwell... Yeah, he, he he feels like a character that 
people respect. You can understand why O'Brien respects him, why he's in the mm. position of a, of this Nebula-class starship, which is not far off a Galaxy-class starship, really, in design as well. It's probably almost as powerful. He is a character all about war. I think as soon as he, as he boards the Enterprise, he, he mentions Riker's efforts against the Borg. And, you know, he's immediately... Yeah. He's, he's on a war footing focus all the time. And, uh, you know, and immediately he's telling Picard that Cadassians are building for war. Yeah, something we will see in Deep Space Nine. And he's not going to act for Starfleet. He's going he's gonna to act now. And I always felt like there was something else missing that we didn't quite know. Because I like the, like, the idea, like, when he says to Picard, it's must be like a bureaucrat's office. You know, he calls up Picard for being like the rest of the Federation, mm. the rest of Starfleet, hiding behind their rules and restrictions and not willing to take action. And he's willing to take action now. But again, I like the debate, you know, Picard calling out his principles to avenge his family's deaths. And that kind of, you know, Picard is, is that even though they're both captains, Picard, given his orders, is in the superior position here. And Maxwell has to follow him. So... I really like the button of heads of, of Maxwell and Picard. I like Maxwell generally as a character. But, yeah, I, I think there's something a little bit, there's something missing in the conclusion yeah. of the episode as to why Maxwell does what he does. I believe him as a character. I believe that he's in the war footing now. And, he, and what he believes is just and is right and the right thing to do because otherwise the Federation are going to find themselves in a war. Though I would have thought attacking Kardashian ships would cause a war in the first place, so I, I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of a weak element there, but I um, I like Maxwell. I like the mystery. I even kind of get the conclusion with the idea of Kardashians arming ships ready for uh, essentially an invasion of Federation space. But I don't think there's enough shown on screen to kind of justify Maxwell's actions. I think the episode kind of suffers from familiarity bias with the Cardassians um, because we're going back and watching this, yeah. knowing their history, No, well not knowing their history, knowing what will happen in the next ten years across Star Trek and yeah, it's hard to put all that to one side when you're going back and re-watching the episode and thinking how did I take this episode on first viewing? How did I take the Cardassians? What did I think of Maxwell's motivations? Um, and as you said, I th- I th- it it's weird because, yeah, while it feels like there's something missing, I kind of also think we know too much. Mm. Um, and maybe a good sort of Torchwood-style retcon might help <laughs> us to enjoy this episode again, fresh, for the first time. Well, I, think I enjoyed it. I, I almost didn't have a problem with it. It's only when you kind of break it down in isolation that you, you kind of really question it. I, um, I almost didn't, when I watched it, I didn't have any note, I didn't make any note saying, this doesn't make any sense, because I believed it. Because, but that's because mm. of the knowledge of the Cardassians that follows. The Every one of the Cardassians, after the wounded, makes the wounded a better episode. If the, if this was the only time the Cardassians had ever appeared, or it, or it was another race entirely, you've probably gone great episode. Engine's a bit weak because there wasn't really enough there to justify the actions of of Captain Maxwell. Yeah. So I, yeah, but the fact that we know what we know of the Cardassians, I I bought it fully. So it's a better episode on on, on repeat viewing than maybe it was in isolation the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree because you you know a bit more about the. Uh about the ultimatums and, yeah. and everything. But as I said, I, I would like to have gone back to watch it fresh to see what, um, not knowing what the Cardassians 
are all about would have would have made me think more about the episode yeah definitely so uh, i think that really comes to the end of the wounded i think you know, it does set up the Kardashians as a recurring player in the Star Trek universe. You know, Picard says, take this message to your leader's gormaset. We will be watching. And they do continue to make their presence known. So I think whether D Space Nine was a glimmer in the eyes of Paramount and the Star Trek producers and writers when the Wounded was made or not, it certainly feels like there are things in the Wounded that are very that work really well in setting up D Space Nine. Yeah, got one question for you before we move on, though, and that is regarding the Cardassian ships. What do you think of the design of the ships themselves? They're very distinct. I, I like them, but that may be because of familiarity with them over particularly Deep Space Nine. I think compared to the Klingon ships or the Romulan ships, the Borg ships, maybe even I, maybe even the Ferengi ships, I don't think they're as strong. But... um mm. I think, again, it's that kind of colour skin. The yellow, I think, is very striking. And so I've got a familiarity with them, but I think in terms of Star Trek ship designs, they're probably not the strongest for me. Yeah. I have... I do like the design of the ship, uh, but I've got the same kind of problem I do with them as I do with the Liberator from Blake 7 in that it always looks like it's flying backwards. <laughs> it does. Because of the design of the ship. It, it's, it, it feels like it should be the sort of narrow-end sort of pincer at the front of the ship, uh, and the big sort of, uh, com- well, obviously the command centre and the main accommodation at, at the top and the, uh, and the back, but obviously it flies through and it's got the tail coming behind it, um, which again possibly is you know part of their reptilian history mm. but yeah it it always feels uh the, the cardassian ships have always felt like they're flying backwards in star trek <laughs> to me and i know it's completely irrational but yeah uh, i i think you're probably right i think yeah maybe, maybe it's like a slight jellyfish <laughs> design. I, I don't know <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know um yeah yeah i i, I think you're probably right that they, they they probably look they, they look backwards um, but hey, they're still good. So let's talk about um, the Cardassians then moving on. So they, they would appear again in Season 5, Ensign Row, which we, we almost decided we were going to talk about. And we decided to put it aside for another time to talk about Row in general. Mm. But um, obviously that's as a Bajor and, and the uh, the end yeah. of the occupation, which is very key to Deep Space Nine. I think they, they also turn up in Unification as well. But they really make their mark in Season 6 with Chain of Commands, a story that would reshape them into the curling villains we would see in Deep Space Nine. Top secret orders force Picard to relinquish command. I want this ship ready for action. Duty sends him to stop production of the most feared weapon in the galaxy. Destroy it at any cost. Beverly, get out of there! But has Starfleet sent him on a suicide mission? It's a trap. Come on! You are preparing for war. Captain! We are preparing to defend ourselves. On Star Trek The Next Generation. Before we get into the story, a bit of detail about this two-parter as well then. They aired on the 12th and 19th of December in the US and 13th and 20th of September 1995 here in the UK. Part 1 was directed by Robert Shearer and written by Ron D. Moore from a story by Frank Abitamarco. Abitamarco would also go on to write Part 2 with Les Landu directing. So in this story, Picard, Crusher and Worf are assigned to a secret black ops mission into Kardashian space while the ruthless Captain Evangelico takes command of the Enterprise. So, Jeff. 
Let's talk about part one first. What are your thoughts on part one of Chain of Command? Bit rubbish, really, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know even know why we're talking about it. No, seriously. Um, oh, you've got Ronnie Cox as Captain Jellico. Uh, you've got Necheyev in her first appearance. You've got Picard being taken off the Enterprise in the first minutes of the episode. You've got this butting of heads between Riker and Jellico. Uh, you've got the secret mission going on as well. I bet watching this for the first time, there were people going, what is Star Trek doing? We've got a new captain of the Enterprise. Picard's been reassigned. He's taken three of uh, two of the crew with him. Uh, and obviously, with it being a two-parter as well, there must have been this feeling of, are we going to get a new captain? Mm. Is, is this a change for the show? Yeah. I almost wish this had been like a three or four part. So can you imagine how big that would have been if you had more of Jellicoe and Kamara the Enterprise? Um, yeah. It's so Dis- big, isn't Discovery it? Discovery or Picard could have done something like that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's more about Picard. This might have been a Picard season for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we want to see Picard talk for six episodes. But but <laughs> I it, it's a really, yeah, it's a really, really big, big episode. And... You know, I'm much more familiar with the Chain of Command than I am with the Wounded. I remember watching Chain of Command way back in the 90s. It's one of the earliest Star Treks I watched because um, my friend had Sky One in the UK. They did, and I only had professional TV. So we were probably in like season three, and he had Sky One, and it's all the two parts are coming up. So we went, I went two weeks, I went to his house and we watched Chain of Command, completely in isolation of, of Star Trek Next Generation at the time because my experience was much earlier in the show's run. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, the, the, the Torture Picard episode two, Jericho in Command as well, the Cardassians. It was, it's a big, big, big story. And I think while episode two is probably the more, me- part two is more memorable of, of the two because mm. of, of David Warner versus Patrick Stewart. Is, um, that's, that's just phenomenal. We'll get on to that. Part one, again, is so compelling. You know, you, you right, in the in the in the pre-tart sequence, you get the debut of Natalia Nagulik as Vice Admiral Nechev. You know, her first job, she leaves Picard of command, and I think, boom, that's that's the pre-tart sequence, mm. and it's like, wow, this this is something. It shakes it up from the word go, and it doesn't let up. You know, it's really interesting how much of part one sidelines Picard or from Crusher as they complete the mission on, on the hard deck, and what you really get, as you said, is. Ronnie Cox as Captain Edward Jellicoe on the Enterprise, as Captain of the Enterprise, and all the changes he makes. So what do you think of the decisions he makes when he takes over the Enterprise? He's He comes in and straight away he's saying, I want the ship on a four-shift rotation. He wants to know everything about the crew. He gets a bad rap, but he's a very, very efficient captain. He comes in and he knows what he wants. Um mm. And he knows how to run the ship, and you know it's it, never mind. Make it so; it's get it done. Yeah, it's it's all about you know. I want this, and I want it now. And as I said, he gets a bad rap, but I think he's a great captain. I just don't think the the Enterprise crew are the crew he needs to be the captain. He yeah. needs a different crew. They're a peacetime crew. I, I think you're right. Get a DS9 crew and they'll yeah. probably be all for it, actually. Yeah. Or, or the Discovery crew, maybe, as well. But, um, yeah, it's... You, 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 do, you do see a bit more of his personal side in part two. So there's a little bit more of... This might be what the captain 
Captain Jellica might like be in more of a peacetime situation, but this is not this is not the situation. I think because the crew don't know what's going on, and I think it's all the secrecy. Go- it's got, it almost feels like, almost feels a bit over the top, but but there's this the secrecy of Picard's Black Ops mission. You you know it's into Cardassian space because you see that holodeck mission when they, when they shoot that Cardassian. So you know okay. something's going on with the Cardassians even before Golemek turns up, but. It completely sidelines Picard's crush and Worf, and, and all you've got is the crew going, "What the hell is going on?" And he's, you know, he's, he's said he's straight to business. You know, it's it's an awkward handover with Picard, and then and then you, as the audience, you're going, "Is this temporary? Is, you know, is is this a is this a change of the shot? Are we going to get a radical shift in the direction of Star Trek: The Next Generation?" And the fact that you know. He puts the characters down, you know, he talks Riker down in front of Picard, you know, when he questions the Delta shift rotation. And, you know, he's got these battle draws going on. <laughs> the only person that can keep up with him is Data. <laughs> because Data doesn't have that emotional angst of what is going on, what's happening here, where's Picard, what's going on, this is all changed. Whereas Data's like, okay, that's fine. It's no wonder that he makes Data his first officer in part two, because Data doesn't have the emotional hindrance to follow Jellicoe's orders. And going to the other side of it, you've got Troy, who comes into the ready room and says, look, you know, I've, uh, I want to talk to you about the crew and mm. how they're taking to you and that. And his response is just literally, I don't care. You, you, you make them work to the new shift pattern. Oh, and by the way, get into a proper Starfleet uniform. It just completely tr- dismisses Troy out of hand absolutely yeah by the way i prefer a certain amount of formality on the bridge is what he says <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's the way he says it as well because yeah she goes she goes in there generally you know and that's the kind of role she's having picard uh, the crew have concerns maybe if you could talk to them they'll understand and therefore she's not saying your orders are wrong she's not saying this even saying his approach is wrong she's saying there needs to be a, maybe a little yeah. bit more of an engagement and understanding with the crew so they, uh, they, they appreciate what you're trying to do you know her her questions to Jellico are perfectly reasonable. They're perfectly in keeping with yeah. her relationship with Picard, but he shuts her down. And yeah, and and that 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 kind of telling her to get into a proper uniform as well. It just kind of is the last last thing, isn't it? And it kind of cuts her down. And from that point on, as Troy's in quite a lot of both episodes, she's involved in the negotiations as well. There's a lot of stuff with her and Riker, so it's, it's actually a really good two part for Troy as well. But she is complete on the back foot, like she's never really been before. She she doesn't know how to read the situation because he's he's kind of put her down so quickly that she she realized she does not have the same relationship with Jellico that she had that she had with Picard but there's no time to build that relationship either she she's just like everyone else she's got, got to follow his orders and I, I I like that scene in the um in the ready room to be honest and the one thing I would say as well is that from the moment that she gets into that uniform I think we've spoken about this before, but Deanna Troy starts to become a more rounded, more believable character. She's yes, you can absolutely see that this is um, what is she a lieutenant commander? Mm, yes, um, or a lieutenant or a lieutenant. Commander. Well, she, I mean, she, yeah, she becomes a commander in season seven, so she's probably a lieutenant commander at this point. Yeah, that's it. So you know, you can absolutely see that, yes, she is a lieutenant commander in Starfleet. Yes, she has earned this rank through through her abilities. But up until that point, we've seen some great episodes from her. 
but there's there was still I think a bit of stigma about the um, I'm sensing he's hiding something, Captain. Mm. And in this one, into the uniform, and she is straight away a better character. Yeah, I I, I, I agree actually, and I think it removes the objectification of her as well. Yeah, Star Trek has yes. its problem. They do it with Seven and Nine. They do it with Paul. They do it with Kira in a way as well. They don't stop. And this is, this is you know one of the things that have dated very badly about mm. the next generation era of Star all the way through to Enterprise is the idea of putting female characters in cat suits. You know. It, yeah. it it doesn't work. I'm so glad they've stopped doing that now. But you know, you've got you've got basically Troy in his one piece cat suit, and it it doesn't look very professional. It looks like she's basically in loungewear on the bridge. So, and I'll, you know, I'll probably, probably, I'm sure Marina Sirs probably appreciates not uh, having a proper uniform rather than this cat suit as well, because you've probably got to keep in shape to wear the cat suit as well. So, um, you know, and there's no pressure on that as well. So, the fact that it removes the objectification of her as a character. As, as this kind of all look sexy female in a cat suit, she can be a bit more. She always was. I always liked Troy. I I always really liked the scenes mm. when she was she was counselling, but there was something about that objectification of her as a character that never quite sat right, and it kind of got in the way of her as as a as a, as a believable, well rounded character. So when you put her in uniform, you want you do you do start to see her in in the you know. As lieutenant commander, and the later one as commander as well, and and I think that that, that does work in her favour. Yeah, I I completely get the whole thing about the fact that obviously she's a counsellor, so if people come to see her in her quarters or in her in her office, really, that she's going to be, she wants to obviously put them more at ease, mm. so she's not in uniform, she's in, she's in more casual wear, um, she's in that blue dress or she's in the cat suit, so you know from from 24th century point of view she's in a much more casual environment but Jellicoe's right on the bridge when you when you're staffy officer role you're in uniform mm. and the, I suppose if she was doing like oh you know this is my day in my office I'll I'll do loungewear oh on the other hand this is my day when I'm doing diplomatic negotiations i'm in uniform mm. but from that point on she's in uniform all the way through to the end um and yeah it's it, it i think it's a good choice because they could very well have put her back in the cat suits by the end of the two-parter and they don't she stays in uniform which i think was you know good absolutely yeah so when picard and co go off on their mission we get their run of gold and mech as negotiations begin, what do you think of the scenes then between Lamech and Jellico? They were fantastic, mm. and he's he's basically trying to be the big dog. Yeah, Lamech comes in, he keeps him waiting for an hour. Uh, he uh, Lamech stands. Uh, they, they all sit down, and he storms out or pretends to storm out. Troy and Riker look at each other as if to say, "What on earth is happening?" They go on to the bridge and he turns around and says to them, right, I want you to do this, 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 this and this. And it's like, he's got all this planned out. Okay, Riker thinks that he's very sure of himself and Troy knows immediately, no, he isn't. Mm. But he still got it. He still knew exactly what was going to happen. And sure enough, he's got him round the negotiating table and he's got him exactly where he wants him. Definitely. It's, it's like Messess and Picard in the wound as well. You know, they're playing the game and it's you know, there are two wolves yeah. at the table 
and Ray and Troy, they're kind of in the middle going, what do I do? And trying to keep up. And I love the power play between Lamech and Jellico. And I love that it continues into part two as well. You know, this, um, mm. you know, trying to establish the dominant position. And like by making Lamech wait, by storming out and undermining Lamech, Lamech's demands, you know, everything he's doing is basically in reinforcing Starfleet's dominance over the Cardassians. And yeah. it's very heavy-handed. It's very un-Picard-like as well. It's very almost very un-Starfleet-like, but it's great to watch. And I, I love that it continues, um, certainly into part two as well. Yeah, and again, it's, it's, it's obviously them saying, he's not Picard because can you see Picard doing this? Definitely, and yeah. Yeah, Jellico just gets him on the back foot straight away. Yeah. And of course, then there's the undercover, undercover mission itself. Are you a fan of those scenes at the end of the episode? Hmm, I don't know. Um, the one thing I was uh, I was thinking as I was watching it was Picard. I worked it out based on Picard's date of birth and when this episode is set. Picard, at this point, is sixty four years old, and he's being sent on this undercover mission. I mean, don't get me wrong. Starfleet personnel of this time, the highly fit, highly agile, highly able, but you've got a 64-year-old man still who they've decided is the best person to go undercover for this operation. Why not Riker? Yeah, well, it's to, it's to do with his experience on the Stargazer with that kind of radiation that the, the um, mutagenic weapon is, 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 is emanating. So they think that... The, this this kind of biogenic weapon that even the Romulans wouldn't use is linked to an experience that Picard had when he was in command of the Stargazer. So that's kind of the hook for Picard going on the mission. But I know you mean at the same time it almost feels like the, it almost feels like it's too small. Yes, I know you know you you, ha- you have Worf Worf there because Worf's Worf and Crusher because of a medical medical expertise and she was head of Starfleet Medical, I guess. But you still think they would have at least like a group of commandos. You saw that I know you saw that Enterprises came later, but you would think they would have some kind of like Black Ops commandos with them, with maybe Picard leading the team yeah. as opposed to just the three of them. It feels, in the grand scheme of things, it feels a little bit small. I, and I almost wonder the kind of all the kind of stuff going through the uh, the tunnels feels a little bit cheap to me. It's the one bit that kind mm-hmm. of thing let, lets me down. I, I, I like the storyline. I like the idea of going undercover to the fact you don't you don't actually know what the mission is until very late in the game. I found the whole thing when they go to Daemon Solar concept on Cetra's um, free to to you know left and then Crusher seduces the Ferengi to get the information a little bit crass, but probably again in kind of keeping with the kind of style of what DS9 would do with with those kind of storylines as well, and the kind of more corrupt sinister side of the galaxy. Again, it's very Deep Space Nine and that scene, but. I think you know the idea. Crush gets caught in a cave, and Wars afraid of bats. It all kind of feels a little bit cheap and treading water before you get to the idea that actually it's a trap. And I do love that it's a trap, and it was there to lure, lure Picard. And uh, it has a mm. you know that great cliffhanger when you get Picard brought before the magnificent David Warner's Gold Madrid and said, "You should prove an interesting challenge," you know, and it's all a lure to get Picard there. That for me is a great cliffhanger. Yeah, exactly. And the the mission as well with Picard, Wolf and Crusher, later on Deep Space Nine did something similar with the Jem'Hadar, uh, where you had them training a group of Federation, because obviously Nog is going through the training mm. as well. Um, and th- that felt a bit more like it, because they felt like they were going for a, a, a covert mission, an undercover mission. They were trying to do 
what they needed to do. The, the Picard, Wharf and Crusher thing felt a little bit odd. Mm. But yeah, as you said, when you look at it, Picard's history with uh, on the Stargazer, yes. Crusher's history, Wharf, because he's Wharf. But really, they should have taken, as you said, a group of what would have been their equivalent of the Makos, mm. uh, or even just some of Worf's own security detail. Yeah. Take them down, take them onto this mission and go, look, you know, this is an undercover mission, blah, 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 and go from there. But it it doesn't do that, and it's just the captain, the medical officer, and the security chief. And, yeah, it's too small. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. But what a great cliffhanger, though. Fantastic. Okay, before we get on to talking part two of Chain of Command, then let's uh, briefly dovetail into uh, Dave Warner himself. Obviously, Dave Warner sadly passed away, I think only a week or two before we recorded this, so very, very recently, so a few weeks ago from when this is going to go out. Obviously, he has a massive legacy in TV and film, particularly in Star Trek 2, doesn't he? Yeah, he's um, he's played three characters over his career in Star Trek. Uh, he played Sinjin Talbot in Star Trek V The Final Frontier and the incredible Chancellor Gorkon in Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country. And he took on this role in Chain of Command with just three days' notice, which is incredible to me when you see the performance. Yeah. We did ask the question because apparently the previous actor had dropped out and David Warner was brought in um, last minute to um, to replace the actor who dropped out. Uh, he didn't have time to learn his lines. Most of his performance in Chain of Command Part 2 was off cue cards, which makes wow. it even more amazing that we've got such a fantastic performance. He loved this episode more than the movies because he got to work with Patrick T- uh, Patrick Stewart, who he's always been a fan of, and mm. even though he worked with prosthetics again, he he enjoyed this as uh, more than anything else. I mean, from your point of view, Baz, you're um, you're a big Doctor Who fan as well, mm. so you know a lot of the stuff he's done with other parts of this because he's obviously had some involvement with Doctor Who and Big Finish, hasn't he? Well, it, well, he has, yeah. So he he did appear in Doctor Who's Professor Grzenko in uh, Cold War, the uh, first Cedar episode from season seven mm-hmm. or well, series seven of the Matt Smith Doctor Who. But he actually's on Big Finish. Like he actually plays a version of the Doctor, an alternate version of the Doctor in the Unbound series as well. And he played it for a number of years. So you know, to many fans, he actually is the Doctor, um, having played the role—a very unofficial role, an alternate reality version. But yeah, he is a. I mean, he has a fantastic career, and I'm going to get to talk about Dave Warren because he, you know, he. I, I remember him in Time Bandits when I was a kid as well, and you know, that for me, yeah, his his, his villain in that movie was fantastic, and it's one of my memorable um, film moments from my childhood and he's just got an absolutely fantastic career you know say not just in Star Trek but in, in many things and the shocking moment in the movie The Omen as well um, absolutely so yeah. yeah yeah no great 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 career um, yeah you know like the drama teacher in Scream 2 you know he's great in that movie I, I love him as kind of Sydney's mentor as well and uh, yeah no he, he's done he done he had so so many great roles and um, so many voice roles as well and uh but for me, I think it's uh, Gold Madrid in Chain of Command is just one of his best. He is so good in, as this point. I, I really wish Gold Madrid had come back 
in Deep Space Nine or next gen. Yeah, <laughs> I know kind of a reunion with Picard would have been interesting, but uh, at the same time, he's pretty much in one episode because he's, he's literally at the end of Chain of Command Part 1. But what a performance in Chain of Command Part 2. It, I think as great as Gorkon is in The Undiscovered Country, this is his Star Trek performance. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, because he was reading the lines off cue cards most of the time in the episode, it just makes the performance even more phenomenal. That's amazing. Because... You know, you've got the fantastic performance across the room from Patrick Stewart, um, and David Warner is is reacting to all of this while reading these lines, and mm. you believe every single second of it. Um, and you know, they often say that this episode should have been nominated for Emmys and that. Oh, absolutely. Because of Patrick Stewart's performance. I'd even argue that David Warner is is deserving of an award for this episode as well. Oh, 100%. It's just so good. Held captive as a prisoner of war, Picard must endure the cruelest punishment imaginable. You cannot just abandon him. He's gone. Will torture leave him a forgotten casualty of war? I can't believe you're willing to sacrifice Captain Picard's life as a negotiation tactic. Are you questioning my judgment, Commander? Or can he survive the most brutal test of courage in his life? You cannot hurt me! On Star Trek The Next Generation. I mean, this is an episode that's filled with several big key relationships. We're talking about like Jellico and Riker and Jellico and Lemek later on as well. But yeah, the back and forth between Gold Madrid and Picard is so good. And the fact that he was reading off cue cards because he didn't know the lines just makes it even more special. Mm. Um, I love everything with, with him. You know, it's, it's not just Madrid. Talk, talk to you Picard, Picard. It's not you know you remember the four lights and him being stripped naked and dehumanized, but actually there's so much more than that. I mean, what what are some of your favourite moments from Chain of Command Part Two between Gold and Picard? Some of my favourite moments. The whole episode is just <laughs> amazing from start to finish. The moment where Madred strips his clothing and says, mm. "You are." Uh, you do not have right of rank, you do not have right of person. From now on, you will be known as just human. And you can see how much Picard is deteriorating from the from the torture. Mm. And I've got to say it as well, that, that, that what we're actually talking about there, Patrick Stewart is a... a big supporter of the uh, of the group Amnesty International and he reviewed many tapes that were provided by them about torture and apparently in the original script he was all for it he said yeah I want to do this it shows the harsh reality of it and they tried to do some rewrites of it to try and tone it down and Patrick Stewart kept saying no don't tone it down I want it to show just how bad torture is it is shocking, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the fact, I mean, they, they do a very clever way of, of covering up part of Patrick Stewart, but you know, he is there naked in front of Madrid, yeah. and it's it, yeah, it completely, you know, you, he literally is dehumanized. He, you know, he's mm-hmm. ripped of clothing, of rank, of person, of, of, of identity. You know, you talk about Jellico and Lemek, you know, playing off each other, who's the bigger person? You know, Picard absolutely loses everything in this episode. Yeah. 
and uh, you know it starts. And, and what I really like about it is that there are layers to this. You know, you st- what what starts off with you don't start with that scene. You start them talking about archaeology and sharing yeah. in their shared interests. In Madrid, gets into Picard's head and goes and talks about what Picard's passion about. You know, whether he has an interest in archaeology himself or not, you don't know. But he he seems to yeah. You know, he establishes a rapport. He tries to, uh, you know, build build that connection with Picard, and then the media goes with a threat of punishment unless he provides in for the Federation, and then comes the torture. So immediately, you know, Picard is never quite sure where he is. He's, uh, you know, you know, is, is he talking to someone on the same level? Is he talking to someone who is basically stripped him of everything of his own identity? And, and, he, and he's completely broken down. You know, is, is is Picard able to fight back? And you see that in the episode. There's the, um, you know, obviously you got you got the, the four lights when he when he goes how many lights and that pain device is implanted, mm. and you know Warner's performance when he's showing dominance over him is utterly chilling, but Picard mm. doesn't let go. He does it. He refu- even though there are four lights and. Madrid say no, there are five, and basically, if he, he, and Picard knows if I say five lights, the pain will stop. But he, he, he has to fight back any way he can, and that's how he does it. He goes, it does it with the truth, and he, he keeps turning the truth right to the very end, even though that comes at such physical cost to his body. Even at the point where he he sort of throws him that that last chance or that that chance, and says, you know what. I can't get anything more out of you. You're free to go. And Picard stands up. He starts walking out. And then he said, I'll get it from the woman instead. Mm. And Picard turns around, comes back in, sits down. Because he knows that Crusher wouldn't... I don't know. But he doesn't want Crusher well, to go... He, he, he doesn't want to inflict it on yeah. Crusher, does he? That's it. That manipulation. You you know at this point, Worf and Crusher are escaping. They're back on the Enterprise. Yeah. They're safe. And it's when he goes, we'll get it what we need from the human female. You know, at that point, Picard's defiance is lost. Yeah. You know, the the idea of of of, of letting Picard go is all is all fake. Mm. It's all a facade. And again, it's that dominance that Madrid has over Picard. So, you know, all these characters in this episode are kind of fighting for dominance in a very entertaining way. So are Lamech and Jellico. But yeah, we've we in, in the Madrid Picard scenes, Picard can fight back with the truth. But he won't inflict it on 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 his on his uh, on Crusher or even well his war's dead, which mm. kind of believable. But uh, you know he, he would never he never inflict on Crusher what he's experienced. Yeah. And even though that means he chooses to stay and chooses to experience the pain and the humiliation and the torture, you know he he keeps doing that. And you know it shows the strength of Picard as a character as well. The fact that he will continue to fight even though it's um it's unbearable what he experiences. He's he's the captain. He is looking out for his crew. So he would rather undergo the torture than see anybody else on there. And even if it was the other way around, even if um, Madrid had said, oh, we'll get it from the Klingon instead, and said that Worf was still alive and Crusher had been killed, you can bet anything that he would still have turned around, walked back into that room and gone, no, carry on with me. I don't want you yeah. inflicting that on Worf. And you know Worf would be so much stronger, so much more able to withstand that mm. torture, and he still wouldn't allow it, I'm sure of it. Oh, 
absolutely. The other thing I really like about those scenes as well is the well-being of the Cardassians. You know, the Madrid talks about they were peaceful and weak, and now they have strength for the military. And you know, he, he talks about his his time on on the streets when he was a child, mm. um, living living. Um, um, Madrid talk about you know the live taskbar egg, and he was a, he was on the streets. And Picard immediately turns it back and says, "You were, so Picard sees him as a powerless six-year-old boy, and immediately is is great. You know, we get back into the lights and the torture. But as there's that moment when, again, Madrid tries to open up and share. You know, it could all be a complete lie, but he tries to share a connection with Picard, and Picard's able to throw that back with, you know, I now see you as a powerless six-year-old boy. Picard has that moment of victory, even though we go back to the lights and the torture." Picard has that moment of victory yeah. uh, over him, and the other thing I also like as well is Madrid and his daughter. I was going to say yeah, Madrid, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. So humans don't love children like we do, and there's all of family importance. You know, we'd, we'd see that with Ducat particularly. You know, family is so important to the Cardassian Cardassians. Mm. Yeah, it, it's part of their central belief, and you see it with Ducat and Ziel and Ducat with his family, and the idea of. This only brings them. Same with Demar. Demar is a family to one as well. Family is so important to the Cardassian characters we see in Deep Space Nine, and and you see it here with Madrid and his daughter too. Yeah, you've also got the um, Technique Gamora. I think it is the one that uh, Kira is altered to appear Cardassian. Yes. To pretend to be the daughter of this um, this elderly Cardassian as well. But yeah, the the other thing as well is obviously Picard is a single man he has no children of his own so he's madred is basically able to put picard in front of his daughter and say look you know you know they don't value family they uh, because this man here he doesn't have a family mm. but uh, and i know they don't say that but i'm sure that's part of what's going on as well because as i said yeah picard is a single man with no kids Absolutely, yeah. So before we get on to the final scene with Picard and Madrid, let's talk about Jellicoe and Lemek. I think it's a really lovely, it's a really fantastic game of cat and mouse between these two across the episode too. Yeah, again, um, obviously Picard is busy doing his own thing, but you know that this wouldn't be the sort of thing that Picard would do. He would be more negotiating, but um, it, it's all about being the big dog uh, with Jellicoe. He's mm. trying to put the Cardassian very much under his paw and basically show them who's in control and it, it all culminates with that demand of returning Picard and yeah it's he, he never once falters yeah well there's, there's that moment is I, I absolutely love John Durbin in this in this in this role as well that that mix of smile and glares he has that that continuous smile he wears in his face but it's also glaring at the same time yeah one uh yeah Cox and Durbin are just fantastic playing each other yeah. they are two wolves fighting for dominance the whole time I love it and it's that moment when um Lemek reveals we captured Picard he he attacked and killed women and children and suddenly Jellico, he's on the back foot for a moment. Yeah, all that kind of power play and all that dominance over Lemek and making him wait and, and control. And suddenly, Jellico kind of hesitates because Lemek, with that wonderful smile, goes, You know, we have Picard now. And so Jellico has to refuse to acknowledge Picard's mission. And because um, Lemek has all the cards here, which again is, is fantastic. Yeah, and that caused the tension with Riker as well because Jellico was essentially willing to risk Picard's life. 
to keep the negotiations going. Yeah. You know, Picard's life isn't worth war, which is which is which is true. You know, one life for the many. It's kind of it's, it's that kind of debate. But I I do love as you mentioned that that when when he when he turns it again, and it's a real moment of triumph for Jellico when he um, sets off that mine to force the ships to leave the nebula. And that's only a baby mine. I can now set up a bigger mine, if you like, and then, um, you know, forces Lamech to reveal that, A, there are Cardassian ships in that nebula waiting to go into Federation space, but also it allows Jellicoe to have that raw moment of triumph over Lamech. And even though Jellicoe is not a bastard throughout both these episodes, when he wins over Lamech, it's like, you know, which is the worst of these characters? And the fact that Jellicoe wins over Lamech is a real moment of triumph as well. Yeah. You, you do you do support him at that point, even though mm. even though you've had two episodes where you feel that he's been a dick to the characters that we've been watching for the last six years, and particularly he you know he relieves Riker of his first yeah. officer status, which is brave, and you you've got that moment where he comes into Riker's quarters and says, "Look, I don't like you." Um, I don't think you're a very good first officer, but I know you're a damn good pilot. So he asks his, you know, he asks him for a favor, and Riker's brilliant comeback to him is like, well, okay, now that the ranks are out of the way, I don't like you neither, but I will do the piloting for you. Yeah, yeah, you're you're not a particularly good captain as well. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I, I I I adore that scene because it's it's um, all the cards on the table. I need you. And I'm going to do this for Picard, mm. so I, I'm going to do what needs to get done because I, I, we're both good Starfleet officers. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree. I, I like that they don't make up. They, oh, they don't shake hands no. and go, yeah. It, well, actually, after all, it was good. You know, like when when um, I think when uh, Jellico eventually leaves, Jellico says, "It's been an honour serving with you." And you know, there's <laughs> Picard's just the way you left it, maybe a bit better. But it's been an honour serving with you all, <laughs> yeah. and. You don't get the crew to go. Oh, thank you. You know, oh, we'd love to see you again. You know, say hi. We're next in this part of the galaxy. No, yeah, it's like you were a dick. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, and he doesn't believe it too either. But I, 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 I do like some of Jellicoe's relationship with the crew. But, you know, I, I like that he puts Data in there because Data, Data, Data in sec, in uh, as first officer because Data is the only one who doesn't have that emotional baggage that will stop him um, doing Jellicoe's orders and I really like Data in Red I think you put any character in Red you see it when you Worf in Red in Deep Space Nine you put a character in Red and they look better I think on Star Trek and Data looks really good in Red Yeah, the other character as well I thought um, worked quite well with Jellicoe was Geordie yeah and Geordie seemed to thrive on it a little bit more I think um, because I, th- I think he liked the responsibility that was being placed because Jellico says to him at one point I know you're a good pilot you know straight straight off with the compliments and that he knows how to mm. get Geordie to do what he needs him to do so yeah it's as I said he is not the captain in Star Trek The Next Generation he would be a captain of another series, and he'd be a damn good captain of another series mm. of another ship. But he does not gel well with uh, our crew. No, he doesn't. But um, but yeah, you're right. Seems like with Geordie, you you get there, you start to see a little bit of what Jellico might be like mm. if it wasn't quite so tense the situation. So yeah, so let's come into the kind of final scenes now. We've Jellico outwitting Lamech, the Kardashians are forced to retreat, and Picard is released. But we get that one terrific scene between Madrid and Picard before that happens. 
Or you can live in comfort with good food and warm clothing, women as you desire them, allowed to pursue your studies of philosophy and history. I would enjoy debating with you. You have a keen mind. It's up to you. A life of ease, of reflection, and intellectual challenge. Or this. What must I do? Nothing, really. Tell me how many lights you see. How many? How many lights? This is your last chance. The guards are coming. Don't be a stubborn fool. How many? You told me he would be ready to go. We had some unfinished business. Get him cleaned up. A ship is waiting to take him back to the Enterprise. Captain Picard. If you'll go with the guards, they'll take care of you. Jellico has demanded Picard's return. He goes back in. He says that the Enterprise is in flames. Uh, the crew are dead. And he says, how many lights? And Picard's face is one of defeat at that point. Y- you are convinced that he is going to succumb. He's going to say five lights. And he doesn't say anything. He's sort of staring at the lights there's nothing left. He's he's exhausted. He's emotionally exhausted. Mm. He's physically exhausted. There is nothing left in Picard. The tank is dry. And the two Cardassians come in and said, say they should be ready. Uh, he should be ready for return to the Enterprise. And at that moment, Picard just... With his last breath or his last amount of energy just yells there are four lights yes there are four four lights lights. it's like that's acting that's like acting with a capital a it's it's great i i'm patrick stewart is so good you talk about yeah these episodes should have got all the awards for david warner and for patrick stewart you know that is a a absolute triumph you know Mm. the lies are broken and when he does that it's such such a a great great climax to that relationship yeah and you get the revelation in the quarters later when he says to Troy, yeah, I almost did say, uh, I, I could see five lights. I thought there were five lights, but I knew there were four. And apparently that's all a um, a reference to 1984. I've never read it, but apparently there's a torture scene or torture um, in the book where Winston Smith is tortured uh, into admitting that he can see O'Brien holding up five fingers instead of four. Mm. And, um, yeah, that that last moment where you feel that Picard is about to break, he's about to say five lights, it is obviously all based on that. And, yeah, yeah. it's 
phenomenal acting from both of them because yes yeah because David Warner well Gul Madred knows that this is his last chance any second there are going to be two Cardassians walking through that door to take Picard away he has to get yeah. that information out of him and it is his absolute last chance so he throws See, I, I don't even know I think he's just getting that victory he needs Picard to say five like he needs to know that he's won yeah even if it's that little victory yeah yeah yeah, and that's it. It's the victories between all of them, all these characters. It's it's so good. All these dynamics across across this two parts are just amazing. So, any uh, kind of final thoughts then on the Cardassians in general, the wounded, chain of command, anything else you want to discuss on this? Picard looks really haunted at the end. You can see the mm. damage that these last few yeah. days have taken out of him because you can see it in his eyes. And Picard, you know, over the last couple of years, he's been assimilated by the Borg. He's now been tortured mm. by Madred. Watching this two-part episode back makes me think that Madred should have been one of the skulls that we saw in his office in Picard. Picard, yeah. Um, I know we see Ducat's skull, but I really, really think it should have been Madred. With the tables turned, you can imagine that version of Picard torturing Madrid instead. Yeah, as much as it was a lovely callback to Deep Space Nine and Ducat, which is one of the greatest yeah. villains on Star Trek, I think it was it was a I love that it was Ducat, but I, I agree. Picard Madrid would have been got the ice on the cake, yeah, if it was Madrid. Yeah, Picard's yeah. history was more with Madrid than with Ducat. So yeah. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. So yeah, that, that comes to the end of our discussion. Oh yeah, what a great set of episodes and I'm, I'm really, really uh, glad we got to uh, talk about them finally. Yeah, me too. Uh, I I will gladly watch those episodes over and over again. They are Star Trek's yeah. finest. They are, absolutely, definitely. So we're actually going to take a month break off. We've both got many projects um, on, on the go. Um, I'm currently running a Lord of the Rings podcast, so I'm busy talking Rings of Power. And, and uh, Jeff, you're going to be uh, guesting on some other podcasts as well so we decided for our sanity we're going to you know after the the immensely brilliant chain of command we're going to, we're going to take a little bit of breather for a month and we're going to come back in november but we're going to come back with our second next generation movie on its 20th anniversary yes star trek nemesis star trek nemesis yeah um i th- well we'll get into it more when obviously we talk about it um but yeah, it's a film that has, I think, improved since Picard, let's say. Yeah, definitely. And I think with Picard as well, in light of what happens, particularly in season one, it'd be great to revisit that. Mm. So in the meantime, where can people find you online if they want to talk TNG or anything else with you? Well, my main uh, Twitter handle is at NCC underscore Formula One. Uh, you can talk to me about anything Star Trek on there and obviously also anything Formula One or motorsport. Uh, I also run a second channel called At Specky World Cup, which is for retro gaming, particularly the 80s Sinclair Spectrum. And you can find me on um, a lot of podcasts, including my mentioned Lord of the Rings podcast, One Wars and All, over at We Made This Podcast Network. And um, you can find me on Twitter at Baz Green, where I post all my podcasts and all my books and all the writing I do as well. Yeah. And, of course, you can find Beyond Firepoint on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook by searching for Beyond Firepoints. You can all find us on all good podcast providers, and we'd particularly love if you give, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to get us out there so for any potential new listeners. So please uh, give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts too. Thanks, Jeff, again. It's been, it's been a pleasure as always. It's been a pleasure here as well. 
And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for joining us at Beyond Farpoint. Let's see what's out there. Engage.